All right, turn with me to Exodus chapter 1, and I'm going to begin reading at verse 6. And Joseph died, and all his brethren, and all that generation. And the children of Israel were fruitful, and increased abundantly, and multiplied, and waxed, which means grow, grew exceeding mighty, and the land was filled with them. Verse 8 says, Now there arose up a new king over Egypt, which knew not Joseph. And he said unto his people, Behold, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come on, let us deal wisely with them, lest they multiply. And it come to pass that when there falleth out any war, they join also unto our enemies and fight against us, and so get them up out of the land. Therefore they did set over them taskmasters to afflict them with their burdens. And they built for Pharaoh treasure cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew, and they were grieved because of the children of Israel. We'll stop there at verse 13. Notice at verse 8, and this is especially for those of you who know the Bible, It says, now there arose up a new king over Egypt, which knew not Joseph. I shared with you that the intent of this message is to help parents understand the critical need for their children, for themselves, for our country, to train up a child in the way that he or she shall go. And it says, when he or she is old, then they will not depart from it. The idea this morning is the importance of training up the next generation. And should Jesus delay his coming any longer, the generation after that and after that and so on. Because here in verse 8, we have a very engaging statement of what happened to the children of Israel when the government, Pharaoh, the new Pharaoh came up and he knew nothing about Joseph. And the part that Joseph, obviously a Jew, played in the history of Egypt. So for those of you without the necessary background to this verse, let me just give you a little primer. When we go into the book of Genesis, we find, well, many things. And by the way, the book of Genesis is the foundation for the entire Bible. All the other 65 books rest on that one foundation, New Testament including. But... We have these 12 tribes, without going through the long history, we have these 12 sons of Jacob, promised many years before that, and the youngest, the youngest too, Joseph and Benjamin, and Joseph had a special place in the heart of his father Jacob. His brothers, as some of you know, took issue with the fact that he had dreams and spoke of his dreams, how he was going to find leadership over the family. So they decided to just cast him into a pit. The idea certainly was to exterminate him. And while I'm on that subject, let me just say this so I don't forget or remind you of it. Some of the greatest obstacles or persecution which has happened in history past both Old Testament and Christian history has come from the people who say we're of God. So Joseph's own brothers, all of them the heirs of Abraham, Take issue with Joseph, because he's not the firstborn. He's young, and he's talking about these dreams he's getting and how he's going to rule over not only his brethren, but his father and his mother as well. So they throw him in a pit, and then through the providence of God, foreign nation, tribe comes along, and he gets sold to them. And so as God would have it, he lets Joseph go into captivity. And this would be a part of your life where you say, where is God? Why do these things happen? Why do the righteous suffer? Keep this in mind that whatever God permits to happen to those that he is truly saved is always for some good reason. In any case, Joseph finds himself in Egypt. He finds favor with the Pharaoh. He becomes a servant to Potiphar and everything is going well until one day Potiphar's wife, who had her eyes on him, decides to invite him into bed. He refuses for all the good reasons and all the right reasons, and then she decides to cry rape. Obviously, the situation wasn't looked into very well. Just Potiphar just had him put in prison, and there he stood. Now, first of all, you're sold by your own family. 
the people of God. You're sold by your own family into captivity. But then there was a blessing. So you start to see that, okay, this could work out for good. I mean, I've actually been promoted through this tragedy. And then all of a sudden, before you know it, the rug is taken out from underneath your feet and you're in prison, falsely accused. Well, then again, Joseph does so well in prison that the captain of the prison puts him in charge of the entire prison, the rest of the inmates. And he does well there. And then he's interpreting dreams that the butcher and the baker have. They're in trouble with Pharaoh. He interprets them correctly. And he only asks one thing. Just remember me when you are set free, when you get out of here. And they forgot. And I want to say this again. This is a pretty fair sketch of how our lives go when we serve the Lord. I often tell people it's tongue-in-cheek, but it's not exactly tongue-in-cheek. And my life hasn't turned out even close to how I thought it would. Not even close. But when I reflect on it, when I reflect on my life, which I've been doing a lot of lately, I can see God guiding me into things and away from things, things that you know, I thought were good things. No, this way, that way. Not all of it has been pleasant. In fact, a lot of it hasn't been pleasant. Yet I still see the providence and sovereignty of God in my own life. This is a sketch for all of you, Joseph's life, I mean. This is a sketch for all of you who desire to follow God with all of your heart. It's not for those who are half-hearted. Your life may just turn out the way you want it. But in the end, it may not be the thing that you really needed. In any case, Pharaoh has dreams. He interprets them correctly. Joseph is finally released from prison. So now he becomes... Second only to Pharaoh, very important person in this massive nation, world power at the time, Egypt. Well, there's a famine in the land, and Joseph's family come to Egypt in Providence once again. They meet their brother, don't know it's their brother, they think he's dead. He reveals himself to his brethren, and then finally the father, Jacob, who thought his son was dead for many, many years, finds out, no, your son's alive. And they find refuge in Egypt. So things go well for a season for the Jewish people. Things go well for a season. But then in our verse, it says, There arose a new king over Egypt, which did not know Joseph. That's the title of my message with one small change. The title of my message is simply, The King Which Knew Not Jesus. The King Which Knew Not Jesus. That's where we're at right now here in the United States of America. We have a government that will give lip service to some historical person known as Jesus, but not to the resurrected Jesus, not to the Jesus who said, follow me and everything else that we know about Jesus who is alive. We have a government that at one time acknowledged the word of God, the Bible, acknowledged the Jesus of the Bible. Obviously, not every founder. We know many of these things. But the majority did. And when people say America was not a Christian nation, you know they're either one of two things. They're lying. But I don't think the majority are actually lying. I think the majority are actually that ignorant of history. Not history books, historical papers and documents written by the founders. The fact is that Christ and Christianity profoundly affected America, and not only America, but the Western nations of Europe, profoundly. Even Jordan Peterson, I heard him speak a little bit about the fact that the Bible is the foundation of Western society. And it is. But over the years, slowly, a king arose that does not know Jesus. Even though our money says in God we trust, now that definition of who is God is very much open to debate by many, many people. And so... For Israel, this is where the problems begin. The king is set up over Egypt. It says he doesn't know Joseph. That just only preceded him very shortly before he arose. Did he not take time, as so many people do, when they pontificate about American history and say things that if you've studied it, and we have here, no better. Whether people agree or they disagree is not the point. History is what it is. So when this king comes up, He notices the children of Israel are just growing, and now he's concerned. If another nation comes in and gets access to their minds, they may revolt. And so he makes their bondage bitter, as we read, and things for a while get worse, including when Moses is raised up by the Lord 
And then when he finds out he's Jewish, he didn't know for most of his young adult life that he was Jewish. When he finds out he was, he starts to try to protect his own people. And that gets him into trouble. When you try to protect the Jesus of the Bible, it's going to get you into trouble. And it's going to get you into trouble not only from people who have no knowledge of the Bible or don't want any knowledge of the Bible, who read through it once so that they can antagonize you. Then you're going to have trouble like Moses did from the very people of God. But Moses comes along and he's told by the Lord, go back to Pharaoh after he leaves. He murders an Egyptian. He flees the country. He's out in the wilderness. And God says, turn around and go back and tell the Pharaoh, let my people go, which as we know was a promise given long ago to Abraham. There would be a people, he wouldn't be able to number them for a multitude, yet they would be strangers in a foreign land, and in this case, slaves for over 400 years. That's a long time, 400 years. But Moses comes along and he's given a commission he does not want. And I want to remind you, real ministry, biblically and today, is a type of situation where the person called into ministry has some measure of reluctance. You won't have any measure of reluctance to speak to people and to motivate them. You won't have much problem if you compromise or lukewarm in the pulpit. But you're going to have a lot of challenges when you're called by God to speak the truth in love. Moses finds this out. And as he goes to Pharaoh and says, thus saith the Lord, let my people go. And Pharaoh gives him a hard time. The tasks upon these slaves is increased. And then God delivers them with 10 specific plagues. The last of which ends up in the death of everything that was firstborn. Humans, animals, everything that was firstborn. Finally, Pharaoh lets them go. Now, as we begin, let's take a note that even though Israel is multiplying in numbers, these very people here that we just read about, once they are set free, do nothing, relatively speaking, do nothing but complain and murmur about the way. How many of you were told by a preacher, by a pastor, by anyone who may have led you to the Lord, to beware that this way is rough. Instead, today, we have preachers who try to grease the skids and present to their audience in very clever ways with trim slogans and even a few hackneyed expressions. There's nothing to this life. But that is not the fact. The fact is that to live for Christ, as Christ explains to us, it's a narrow way. We're hemmed in with many difficulties we would not have if we were not on our way to heaven. Well, I'd rather be hemmed in with many obstacles and difficulties and know I'm on my way to heaven than have a smooth life if there's any possibility of that and have the skids greased while I'm sliding into that place called hell. And how do I know hell exists? I tell you all the time, because Jesus said so. And that's all that I need to know. I don't have to find myself in some type of intelligentsia where I can explain everything, because quite frankly, I can't explain everything. I can explain a lot of things, and I can explain them reasonably, but that doesn't really satisfy people. It exists because Jesus said so. It exists because he died on the cross to keep us from going there. But that doesn't mitigate the fact that when we follow Christ, it's a narrow path. It's a narrow way. We're hemmed in with obstacles we would not have if we decided not to follow Jesus. Or halfway through to say, as we read in John 6, 6, 6, I'm finished with this. I'm finished with this type of preaching. I'm finished with this constant discipline stuff and all of that. Well, didn't the prophets of, well, Jeremiah's time comes to my mind. Weren't they the ones that the people were saying, preach to us smooth things. Preach to us easy things. I can do that, but I would have to lie to do it. And that I won't do. And so Moses has all of this, <laughs> these problems. He has a problem because he doesn't want to go to Pharaoh because he understood what real ministry is all about. And then all the long ways I mentioned to you in this song... The people complain about everything. They didn't like the manna. Where's the water? Honestly, I can understand these are some severe tests. Where's the water going to come from? It's similar to watching the news tonight, and they're saying this is what's going to happen, and this is what's going to happen, and this is what's going to happen, and maybe some of it will. But you have a book called the Bible where God talks about being faithful to his people, and you know, as I've told you so many times, you either believe it or you don't. It's just that simple. And that's a decision that comes from your will. You believe it or you don't. My God shall supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. And he says that when he's in jail. And he was in jail a lot. Apostle Paul. 
nothing easy about this way, so let's get that out of the way. But in the end, as the song says, when we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that'll be. When we all see Jesus, we'll sing and shout the victory. There arose a new king over Egypt, which knew not Joseph. We now have in America something that our founders were concerned about. Read John Adams and the rest. They were concerned that our government would turn into a mob with no real restraints, no moral restraints. And our founders understood this, that this form of government that we have here in America, a republic, was only good for moral and virtuous people, and that it was wholly inadequate for any other. And so we have a new king, and I'm not picking on our president, our current president. You think back in your history and think back, even though I gave you a hint, how many presidents, U.S. presidents, have been really committed Christians that have come out and said so when appropriate? I mean, they're elected to be president, not to be Christians. And it is kind of ironic, I think, when you think about how you know, people can speak about the presidency of Jimmy Carter. Well, many people are not satisfied with his presidency or were not satisfied with his presidency, yet he's one of the only ones that was consistently claiming to be born again. And as far as I'm concerned, proved it. Doesn't have any reflection on his presidency. We're talking about him as a Christian, not as a president. But there was James Garfield. Now, he was a clergyman. And he was elected, as you know, he's our 20th president. Didn't get very far, if you know your history as well. Just a couple of months and he was shot. And within a couple of months after that, from sepsis, he passed away. He died. He was assassinated. But he said this, Garfield said this, when he was elected president. He was a preacher, like me. He said, I'm leaving the highest office in the world to become the president of the United States. That was the value, 19th century. And I read to you from our New York State Constitution in the 18th century. That was the value placed on preaching and preachers. Today, it's different. I won't go through all the dynamics, but it's different. We now have a king that does not know Jesus. And if we learn anything about history, is that we do not learn anything from history. Let me give you a couple of quotes. One of my favorites is the Mexican-born American philosopher George Santayana. In his essay, Life of Reason, said this, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. But he wasn't the only one that said that. Hegel, the German philosopher, said, What experience and history teach us is that people and governments have never learned anything from history or acted on principles deduced from it. Pretty much the same idea. Adolf Huxley, whose most famous work, A Brave New World, which oddly, like Orwell's 1984, has almost a prophetic connotation to it, he wrote these words concerning history, that men do not learn very much from the lessons of history is the most important of all the lessons that history has to teach. And before we talk about world history and what has happened in times past, I want to ask you about your personal history. What have you learned from your personal history? What lessons have you learned? To say in a colloquial way, that didn't work out well. I've got to do this differently. Because once again, my experience in life, including my own, my own life, is that there have been times when I didn't learn a thing from this. But my ambition is to say, well, that didn't work out well. Search the word to find out where was I in error and correct it. Maybe that would be the most important takeaway from this message. What have you learned from your own history? You know the definition of insanity? It's doing the same thing again and again and expecting a different result. Now, that may not always be insanity, but it certainly defies, I believe, stupidity. You're doing the same exact thing, getting the same exact results, and then what? Hoping things are going to change? Well, they might change for the worse. You see, we as human beings, from these writers, authors, philosophers, and many others we could quote, observe that if we learn anything from history is that we don't learn anything from history. We repeat it. Let me interject at this juncture. Thankfully, God has his own plan, and he's executing his plan faithfully. All we need to do is stick with his plan. But for the present distress that we have... We live in the country, I'm saying the king, but it's the people, obviously. 
that have come along now that do not know Jesus. Now, I've mentioned this just recently. I'm not sure if it was on the air during my weekly Bible study or here, but there are many of us in this room that are old enough to remember the end of the respect for the Christian Sabbath Sunday in our generation. I remember my dad talking about, you know what, I got to get gas tonight. Nothing is open tomorrow. Or bread or milk or anything, because everything was closed. Why? Because there were laws on the books from the 1600s. This was the government. Not just the church, it was the government, which of course was made up of Christians, professing Christians, that said there will be no work done on a Sunday. Now, it's all changed. And let me add this. Then medical science and perhaps yourself were in awe of medical conditions such as Epstein-Barr syndrome. I hear people this, you know, I'm always tired because God gave one day and he made for man to rest. He put it in the Ten Commandments. I mean, if we couldn't find it someplace else, hidden, in secrecy, he puts it right out in the open. And Jesus said that that day wasn't made for God, it was made for man. And not only for rest for the body, rest for the mind, but then also as a reminder not to forsake the assembling of yourselves one to another as the manner of some is, but to come together, paraphrasing it, all the more as you see the day of Christ's return, judgment, coming to be reminded I have always considered the fourth commandment to be like a plug in a bathtub. Don't matter if you got the water running, you pull the plug, it doesn't hold water. And I believe that once we let go, in the 60s basically, is when we let go of those laws, now simply called the blue laws, on our books, everything just started to circle the drain. Everything just started to circle the drain. Why? Because people were no longer reminded. People were no longer reminded of the ways of God, of the word of God, of the commandments of God, of the principles of God. And look at what we've got. Look at what we've got. We have Hershey's, who has a line out right now, chocolates, where one headline that I read said, it's called Hishi chocolates. Still the same chocolate, but this particular brand is called Hishi because boys make some of the best girls. Look it up. I'm not making it up. Look it up. Boys make some of the best girls. So here's your candy. Cheez-Its. Cheez-Its has on one line of their product, a black male dressed as a woman with a blonde wig, transgender, or whatever he or she is, as a way to promote their product. And I'm listening to friends of mine who are not precisely Bible-reading or church-going people, And they're all saying, I'm reading quite a few on social media, they're all saying, what is going on? We've reached the point of insanity. I don't even know who he was. Somebody was talking about, somebody well-known was talking about that we're like now on a foreign planet and on and on. My friends, let me tell you what we're seeing. We're seeing one nation without God. We're seeing the results of people who should be in church, who say, yes, I identify as a Christian, who are not here and don't bring their children to be taught of the Lord. And it's unfortunate that the results we see now are going to get worse when we don't have children that can grow up and the apostle can say to them, from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures which are able to make thee wise unto salvation. And maybe in a few years, that's of course under debate now too, we may still have money says in God we trust, but the children will be saying, what God? And maybe if you're still around, you will say, you know, the one in the Bible, the one true God. What Bible? Would it be that God would be so merciful to us in America that we would have what happened in the 18th century when Benjamin Franklin wrote in his autobiography about his friend, George Whitfield, as he stood in the field spinning around. Whitfield preached so hard, physically so hard, he would actually vomit blood. That was actually what actually did him in at the end. His friends tried to tell him he got to slow down, but he wouldn't. 57, 58 years old. And as Franklin would listen to his friend, it was his friend, Whitfield, he would notice that when Whitfield would pass through a town preaching 4 a.m. in the morning, remember everybody's a farmer, preaching three, four, five times a day, you go past these cabins, domiciles of American citizens in the 1700s and hear them reading the Psalms out loud, the father reading the Psalms out loud to the children. What do we have in its place now? God help us. God help us. Would it be that we can go through this city of Amsterdam 
and happened to overhear a father reading to his children the scriptures. But at present, that is not our situation. Why? Because we have a king that does not know Jesus. We have a government that does not know Jesus. We have a government that's now telling us we don't want Christians in our government. Remember what Jefferson said, and I remember what Jefferson said. I read his letter to the Danbury Baptist Association in Connecticut about a separation of church and state because they were concerned the government was going to come in and start a state religion. That's the reference. That's what it meant, not what it's become now. People just parrot words. They haven't read the documents for themselves, evidently, or they're lying. We are now being controlled in great measure. Why? Because that's exactly what we read in the Bible. That is exactly what we read in the Old Testament. And then we see it not so much in the New Testament as much as we see it in Christian history. When the people forget their God, the one true God, there is a vacuum that temporarily takes place. And then evil comes in by default. Because there is no other alternative. If God is not restraining evil, it just has to come. And I'm not going to belabor the point and point out to you what you've read and heard and watched this week in the news alone. Why is this happening? That's what everybody's asking. Why is this happening? But I want you to know why it's happening. It's because there arose a king that does not know Jesus. I had a friend of mine made some remark to me, and I don't know why. I knew him for 60 years. Knows I'm a preacher, a pastor, and all that, and this... One day he made some comment that wasn't appropriate on my social media page. So I answered him on my social media page, which I rarely do, and I just mentioned the Bible. His answer, educated man, well, he says some people respect it and some people don't. Which aside from the general consideration of the Bible itself, that you're wiping out a whole millions of people who do respect it, I felt was more of a personal attack on myself to say, you may respect it, I don't. Well, I regret to inform you that he didn't live much longer after that. He died suddenly. Was it the judgment of God? I don't know. I'm not saying that it was. I am saying this much. There's no way this man's going into eternity treating with contempt this book, the Bible. You know, even if I didn't believe the Bible, I would still have reverence and respect for those who do believe it, those who do read it. But do you understand that that respect for you and for the book that God wrote is becoming less and less? And Why? It begins with the parents. Do they see us praying? Do we insist that they pray over their meals? Or as we just say, say grace? Do we call wrong, wrong? Do we remember the words of Isaiah that said, Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil. And you know, I'm not going to go much, much further with this. We just take up too much time to accent the obvious or become a champion of the obvious. Because you're seeing it and you're reading it yourself. But I will say this. It's time for the church to awake to righteousness, not become woke. Whatever woke may mean, because you may say you know what it means, but I've already studied it briefly, and there's not a general agreement on what does it mean to be woke. But I'll tell you one thing there is agreement on, what it means to be evil. Come with me. I want you to read this with me in the book of Ephesians chapter 5. This is the answer to the problem. Awake, not woke. Wherefore he saith, Awake, thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. If you were a farmer, I know some of you were raised on farms, but if we were farmers, let me say it that way, if we were farmers, and it's now harvest time, after all that labor and all that work, and our food depended, I mean, our food depended on us harvesting that which we grew. What a tragedy it would be if we were all sleeping and the food just rots on the vine. Let me tell you something, church. That is precisely one of the problems we have right now. I look out after this July will be 46 years. It's a long time. Be in Christ, preaching Christ in the prisons and all the places that I've been. But I can tell you there has never been a better time to bring Christ to the world than right now in my lifetime. It's time to awake out of our sleepiness. It's harvest time. It's time to tell people. And don't you let this thing go through your mind any longer about, well, what if they don't want to hear? Let me tell you what my experience is, is that there are plenty of people who want to hear. Do they all turn their hearts to Christ? No, but that's not on me. Man says to me just last week, told him a story, said, Jesus Christ. And I said, that's right. Jesus Christ, that's who we need. 
Maybe that wasn't the most eloquent way of putting across what I stand for, but the message is there. Not to take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Are you, have you awakened to righteousness? I'm going to assume, because I know you, that you're not part of the woke system, whatever that may be. And now we have so many companies doing these, look at what's Hershey's doing and what's um, Cheez-Its doing and what's, what's what Disney doing with Peter Pan and all that. Look it up for yourself. It's all about money. Most of these people don't care much at all about the social condition. They just want to make money, most. There may be a few with convictions of their own. The Bible doesn't say get woke, as we understand the term now, whatever it means. It says awaken to righteousness. Do what is right in the sight of the Lord. But if we don't, we will repeat the same mistakes of history that Santayana talked about, Hegel talked about, Huxley talked about. We will have learned nothing from our history, and when we're older... We will wonder why these children, now adults, are behaving the way they're behaving. Because there's no more influence inside America with regard to the church. And we have a king that does not know Jesus. I watched the church, well, the school that I went to is closed down. And churches here in this city closing down, closing down, closing down. It's not just Catholic churches. Some years ago, in my former denomination, they declared a decade of harvest. And they had coffee cups, and they had mugs, and they had t-shirts, and all this thing. And I felt I had a word from the Lord at a pastor's meeting to say, tonight is the night of harvest, meaning do it now. There's all these people that need Christ. Ten years went by in that denomination, and they closed more churches than they opened. Why? Because it's not the plans of men. The way men do things, or as E.M. Bounds once said, God is not looking for better plans or better machines. He's looking for better men that he can fill with the Holy Spirit. That's what it's all about. One man, of course I mean that generically man, woman, truly filled with the Holy Spirit will be able to sing the hymns that we just sang with conviction. Or again to repeat Beethoven and others I could quote as well when it comes to music. To play a wrong note is inevitable. To play without passion is inexcusable. I find many musicians are just stiff. Don't matter what instrument they play, and they're singing as well. But when you can feel a song, when you know what those words mean that we sang, at the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light, and the burdens of my heart, really? Did the burdens of your heart really roll away? Was it really there by faith that you received your sight, and now I'm happy all the day? Now, I'm going to confess to you that I'm not happy all the day. I think that that's stretching things a bit. Joy is a fruit of the Spirit, but the unfortunate truth of it, my friends, is that so many professing Christians act no different than the people in the world. Bad news to the world, bad news for the Christian. And yet we have a God who says, call unto me. Listen, call unto me and I will show you great and mighty things that you, paraphrasing it, have no knowledge of. And that takes faith. In my mind, it doesn't take a whole lot of faith because I look up into the cosmos and I realize God's been holding the Big Dipper was just over our house for a few days in the constellation, you know, in that scheme. And I think about myself, God's been holding that constellation in place for thousands of years. Didn't need my help, doesn't need your help because he's God. Call unto me and I will show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not of. And you can't get it from Harvard. You can't get it from Yale. You can't get it from the least of the schools to the best of the schools. It's one that comes from God when he says, believe me. Believe my word. Now, this is what we need. But here's the thing. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? I can't make you see this. But I tell you, I never leave that office, ever, without saying, oh God, anoint the service. Pray over the preaching, because there is nothing that I can do but to announce what the text says, point out the obvious from history. And we're going to repeat history. And we're repeating history now if we, as individuals, don't change. And say, as Isaiah said in chapter 6, here am I, send me. Because who knows who's going to go with you? Now you've got good friends in this church, and I've got good friends in this church. But believe me, I don't get up on a Sunday morning and say, I know that everybody is going to cheer me today. And I hope that you do. But whether you do or you don't, I'm still obligated to preach the truth in love. And this is the truth, my friends. We need one man filled. Two, three, more, even better. Then we can walk in the light as he is in the light and make a difference. 
And see that third great awakening that we've been praying for. God have mercy on us that they would be reading the scriptures at night to their children. Instead of watching these video games, which I must confess to you, I didn't even know much about these video games. How violent and vile they are. I didn't know. I never played them. I had no idea what these games are doing until some younger people told me. One's a young Christian man. He said, I can't play them games anymore, Grand Theft Auto, where you're allowed to run your car over a citizen or solicit a prostitute on the street. Now, you didn't know that, huh? I think we better start reading about our enemy because I don't know sometimes what's going to motivate us until what? We're in chains? Till we become the subject of direct persecution? To the king that does not know Jesus says we're taking away your tax-exempt status. You say, that's no big deal. Perhaps. But I'll tell you one thing. Without that, most of the churches in America will definitely shut down. That's something that was given to us by our founders that knew how important the morality of the Bible, the grace of God, salvation is to a republic. But at what point will we say, today is the day, this is the day that I go all in with God. Regardless of the cost, I go all in. Look, at you're going to die anyway. I had a friend of mine who's passed away now in Korea as a United States Marine, went on to Vietnam in many, many conflicts for many years. They're in a firefight. Well, they're going to get in a firefight. And they're all huddled. They're all scared. Soldiers are people. They're men. And if you're not afraid, there's something really wrong. There's a certain percentage of psychotic people in the military that are not afraid, but that's psychosis. The average person knows they could die in this battle. In any case, they sat there and they were thinking what they're going to do, what they're going to do. What they're, they're surrounded by the enemy. And somebody got up and says, what the heck? Heck wasn't the word. Oh, what the heck? We're all going to die someday. And they went out and they fought and they won. United States Marine Corps in Korea. True story. When will we wake up? I don't believe that many of you are going to get woke. But I know one person in this room was not. We need to awake to righteousness and let the light of Christ shine on us not on Sunday mornings alone. Every morning, every evening, every time we realize, well, I'm not thinking about God, we gently bring our minds back to thinking on this book. In the Bible, we read of this situation, a city without walls, which today, it doesn't matter if you have walls or you don't because of the technology. But in those days, a city without walls was in a very precarious situation. I want you to know today that the United States of America is a city without walls. And don't get me wrong. You know my stand as far as being a patriot, but saluting the flag is not going to cut it. We are a city without walls. Listen to what it says in Proverbs 25, 28. He that hath no rule over his own spirit is like a city that is broken down and without walls. A city without walls. If we have no self-control, if we don't have the fruit of the Spirit, we are like a city without walls. And then when you put all these people who have not the Spirit of God, I mean the real Spirit of God, the Spirit mentioned here in and throughout this book, then we become a city without walls. And all of our bravado, all of our talk of our past history will mean nothing because we will circle the drain just like every other nation has. We need Christ. We need the Christ of the Bible. Now, this is a bold statement, but I want to just preface it by saying I didn't say this. Spurgeon said it, but I'll say it. Speaking of some preachers of his day, his opinion was the sooner they're preaching by the verse on their tombstone, the better. That was his way of getting across the fact that some preachers are doing more damage to people who do come out to the services than they're doing them any good. The only thing that will do us any good is the word of God, just as it is, and commit ourselves to it. You say, I don't know if it works. Jump off the cliff and find out if God holds you up. Because that's exactly what I did many, many years ago. I wanted to know that this book works. That is still my prayer before God. I'm not as concerned about all the small details, even though they're necessary, and I like reading about them. I want to know that it works. I want to see God's power. I want to see God come through. I want to see God work miracles. And not the kind of goofy stuff that we see paraded around by some of these false teachers. I want to see God come through. That's what I want. And I've seen enough to encourage me to believe God for more in this generation. Because there's a king that has taken office. Again, I don't mean our current president. I mean the government in general. I mean the churches in general that don't know Jesus. Some of us grew up in the 60s, 50s and 60s. Crosby, still Nash and Young, 
a song written by Nash, Graham Nash. Teach your children. It's a pleasant melody. I sang it. We used to sing it. But <laughs> I read the lyrics over again. It's like, teach your children what? Nice song, but probably better that we start singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. The songs of Zion, the songs of God. I want you to turn with me to the book of Deuteronomy and share with you a principle that was given to Moses as Moses is being given the law, Deuteronomy 6, 6. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart, and thou shalt teach them, notice the word diligently, thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, when thou liest down, and when thou risest up, thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine hand, and they shall be as frontlets between thine eyes, and thou shalt write them upon the posts of thy house and on thy gates. Now, various places in my home we have scripture verses. My wife, I think, was the one that got the frames and hung them on the walls. I wanted my children to see them. Actually, one of my children actually complained. Why'd you put that scripture there? It's because you need to see it. I'm not going to live a life where I'm afraid of my own children, that they may reject it. I mean, reject me. I've already counted the cost when I signed on for this, that I might not be accepted by my own family. Now, largely, that's not the case. And I'm happy for that. But who knows? But I'm not going to live in fear of anybody saying, well, we don't like that. Amen. Well, maybe you don't like it. I don't know. But if we don't have God come through this way here, my friends, this situation is not going to go away. I'm looking at this acronym, L-G-B-T-Q. And you know, the longer you look at it, the acronym keeps growing. That's the truth. And I'll say this. I have not been typically you know, hard on the homosexual community and all these things. But now I'm sensing now it's gone too far. Now I have no recourse but to start to open my mouth on this particular issue. Now, there's a lot of sins we can accent. But more and more is just getting shoved down our throat. I'll go back to woke for one moment which ostensibly is supposed to be, we're aware of what's going on socially. We know what I'm aware of world history. I'm aware of Jewish people. I'm aware of Irish people. I'm aware of a lot of people who've had a lot of difficult times and overcame a lot of obstacles who never claimed to be woke. Some of them awakened to righteousness. Some just simply worked hard. Now everybody's got their hand down and say, you owe me. Well, as far as I know, I don't owe anybody anything except one thing, to love them. Beyond that, awaken to righteousness. Awaken to the moment you live in. The harvest is plentiful. The laborers, ever so few. We cannot have that. We must have everybody on board. In what I consider to be an act of sheer providence... And I say this due to your prayers, because I know some of you are praying for me on Saturday night, because I sense it. In an act of sheer providence, I'll leave you with this illustration. Something caught my attention to go over to YouTube, and it was musical. It didn't have anything to do with the message. It was musical. And so I went over there to take a peek, and then there was something below it that just caught my attention. So it got my curiosity. Basically, the title of this little teaching, that's what it turned out to be a teaching, was no one should miss this teaching on the piano. The funny thing is, as you know, I don't play piano. So I don't even know why I'm turning on to this man to watch this lesson on piano when I don't play piano. But I did and got the surprise of my life as what I will consider the capstone to this message. He's an old pianist. I mean, he's old in years. He's 96 now adjunct professor at NYU University, had a very promising concert career, quit when he was 50 so he could teach the piano. A real true master. Matter of fact, he reminded me of my drum instructor who would not settle for anything less than perfection. Now, he never did it perfectly, but that was what you're aiming for. And that's how he presented himself. And he was talking, now listen to me. He was talking about playing the piano. This is not a Christian man that I know of. He's talking about playing the piano. Now listen. And he had this five-part series. I didn't watch the whole five-part series. I just watched this little bit. And he said he was going to give advice. I'm playing the piano. Remember, he's a virtuoso. He's a master. He was playing Chopin's Prelude in E minor. And he says, I want to give some advice, first of all, to beginners, then to the teenagers, then to intermediate, then to the masters, and then to the virtuosos. He was going to teach this lesson. I only got as far as beginners. That's a 96-year-old man, a master on the piano. 
both in theory and playing. And he says, you know, some of you parents, you're going to sign up your children for piano, listen to me, for piano lessons. And then you're going to sit them down and say to them, now practice for one hour and walk away. And basically, he was saying, but they're not going to practice. And they're going to say, I don't want to do this. You ever have that with children? You know how I became a drummer? My father told me about the drum corps that was starting up. And he says, you're going to join. And I didn't have enough anything to say, okay. I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful my father didn't say, how do you feel about that? Because I would have said, I don't want to join. I don't want to do that. They wear these funny kind of colonial uniforms and hats. And I lived in South Yonkers. You don't wear that kind of stuff without getting into a fight. <laughs> You're going. My dad usually didn't act like that. So you sign your child up for piano lessons. You tell them, you got to practice for an hour and you walk away. This is what he said. He said, parents, you must sit there with your child while they practice. Now you say, I don't play piano. And he understood that. He says, that don't matter. You sit there and you practice. Like, watch them practice. Then he gave an example. And listen good, because I'm bringing this to the message. He said, this is a 96-year-old man. He says, now if your child gets up and says, I don't want to eat those, you know, whatever you put out. I'm assuming you give good food, you know, vegetables and a balanced meal and all that. He said, what if your child says to you, I don't want to eat this. And the average parent, a good parent, is going to say, you're eating that. You're eating that. And if I may just throw this in at no extra cost. So many of us grew up with one meal on the table, and you ate it. There was no menu. My mom didn't give out a menu. What would you like tonight? Everything that everybody was going to eat, she cooked, that was it. Anyway, he says, how many of you parents would say, all right, honey, you know, you don't have to eat that if you don't want to. Well, most parents don't. Then he brought it back to piano. He says, do the same with piano. Tell them to sit there and practice for an hour, whether they like it or not. And then he went on to say something that I believe is true. You see, when my father made me take drum lessons, it set a foundation in my life for music for the rest of my life. My father said, you're going, and I went. And even when I wanted to quit, he wouldn't let me. There had to be something providential about that, but I'll get to this point and I'll finish now. Okay, what you eat for supper? Well, that's between you and your refrigerator and your stove. And piano, I personally believe, I really do, that every young child should have some education in music because of what it does for your brain. Whether they play it later or not, doesn't matter. But I'm not going to accent that either. But when it comes to this book, there can be no compromise on this book. You say you believe it, you make sure there's no compromise on this book ever. Now, one of my children one time, he was older, he graduated college. He was at the point where most all my children are, I guess, now all of them are. Dad's not going to tell me anymore what to do, which is fine. But this one child of mine, I was just saying some things. Actually, I was being you know, sarcastic and joking around. During the conversation, he basically told me, Dad, I'm not taking stuff from you. I'm not taking orders from you anymore. I said, okay. I'm good with that. I'm tired of raising kids anyway. <laughs> We're cool. But I told him this, and I mean it. I said, but if you ever turn away from God... I will stand in your driveway screaming to the top of my lungs. You'll have to have me arrested. Was I serious about that? You better believe I'm serious about that. Because that, my friends, is what this book says. We now must have a king that knows Jesus. God have mercy on us in a year and a half from now. God have mercy on us in between. In this city here, as I announced to you before, what's going to be happening come this November. God have mercy on us that when we are found and people come and visitors come, they find us praying. Or if somehow we were to take a peek at you, at your home, they find you reading the Bible, memorizing the Bible, doing all you can to understand it, that God would honor that because he said he would. We can find one man filled with the Holy Spirit, one that will not quit, one that will not give in, one that will not give up, one that says, even if I'm the last man standing... I will never give in and I will never give up, but I will stand for God all the days of my life. Then you, my friend, will be in good company with history past. And God forbid we should see things that could happen in our lifetime. We can at least wash our hands and say, I'm not guilty of the blood. I was faithful to God. Father, we pray for this country. We pray that there would be another wave of your spirit, another great awakening. We don't want that phony stuff. 
We don't want to have it easy. We want to keep squeezing our way through this narrow road. We want to accept you at your word. We want you, God. We can't change your ways and your word, so we accept it. And pray, God, that you would fill your preachers and teachers and leaders in various church fellowships around this country and around the world. That in stentorian tones, they will announce Jesus Christ is Lord. But that he wouldn't just be Lord for a few hours or 40 minutes, 15 minutes on a Sunday. Lord of the life of your people. Make them your people, God. Send forth your spirit, God. Help us, all of us, who struggle against our own sin, let alone the sin of the nation around us. God, we just ask you today to fall on us again and fill us again. And cause us to have that in, intrepid spirit. Most of all, God, I pray that we would have the insight to understand that all of our problems are coming from the fact that there's a king that knows not Jesus. And he's not just in Washington or in the state of New York. He's in the church. Leaders who don't know Jesus, talk about him, make up an imaginary Jesus. Help us today. And I pray for those that are sitting before me, those that are listening on the radio, that they would say as Isaiah said, here am I, send me. Here am I. He didn't know who else would go with him. Didn't seem to care. Here am I, Lord, send me. And I pray today in this sanctuary and again, wherever people are watching or listening, they would have that heart to say, though none go with me, still I will follow. Father, help us. We need your help. For we have a king that does not know Jesus. So, Father, with this, we give you praise and glory and honor because we need to love you with all of the heart, all of the soul, all of the mind, and all of the strength. We need to love one another. And God, just help us to do that. For those of us who say we love our country, help us to be able to truly love our country. And bring it back to the foundation of one nation under God. Help us, God. We need you. We will not fail to give you some of the glory, not even part of the glory. We will not fail to give you all of the honor, all of the glory, and all of the praise. In Jesus' mighty name. And you say amen with me this morning. Amen. amen.